Oh, was that video cool or what, friends? I loved that video and I loved kind of the bridge between our Good Friday service where it was finished and now our Resurrection Sunday service where we get to rejoice. I, I want to wish you happy Easter. I want to wish you a happy Resurrection Sunday. And I, I, just want, I just want you to know because of this day, because of the historical achievement that Jesus accomplished forever on this day, no matter the circumstances, we can and we will rejoice. Amen. There's going to be a couple times I'm going to want you to be saying amen to your TV because there are some serious Amen worthy moments this morning. I want I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. That's where we're going to be together. We're going to look at some text from Luke 24, and I'm going to give you a little background on that in a minute, but the first thing I want to do, the first thing that I love to do before we approach the Word of God is I like to pray. So pray with me, friends. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, in some regards, when I can't think my heart be stirred anymore, Father, thank you that you do just that. Father, I have loved this Resurrection Sunday. I've loved this Easter season in some regards more than most because, Father, I felt I've needed it more than most. With with this pandemic and with things not as they quote-unquote are normal as we as we maybe are used to, God, I've just found myself just crying out to you more, and I've found myself seeking you more, and and Father, I've found myself finding you more in a greater abundance, and I just pray that that's true for everyone. God, that you have never been nearer, that you've never been more available, and that is true because of what we rejoice over this day. You punched the door down. You finished the work. You died, and you rose again. And you ever live to make intercession for us, Father, to pray for us, to connect with us, to be our forerunner, our high priest. And so, God, I pray that you'd take these truths and you'd you'd bring them to the practical level. You'd bring them to the place where our hearts are at today. And, Father, you'd leave us rejoicing because there is nothing more evident than the fact that you rose again. So come, Holy Spirit. You be the teacher. Minister to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Luke 24, as I mentioned. Now, before we get to the text, I want to set the stage a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be picking up kind of right in the middle of two men who are making the journey from Jerusalem to a city called Emmaus. And we're going to see there's a lot going on with them and there's a lot of background information. And so I just want to, let me just set the stage for you here. These two men have made the trip to Jerusalem, Israel for the feast of Passover. They made the pilgrimage journey to come and attend that celebration. And the feast of Passover, we're nearing that point in our study of the book of Exodus. We're, we're almost to Exodus chapter 12. Some of you, you remember, it was initially my goal to be at Exodus chapter 12, talking about the Passover on this very day, celebrating the resurrection. I'm sorry, we didn't make it there. That's why we're in Luke chapter 24. Anyway, so these guys, they're coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. That is a feast that is going to last seven days. So they're going to be in Jerusalem for one week. And there is a lot 
that happens during that one week. And I just want to just kind of hit some of the highlights of what these two men would have experienced while they're there in Jerusalem. Shortly after arriving there, again, one week ago, they would have been there when Jesus comes riding into town on a colt, the foal of a donkey, in a celebration like the king that he is. And remember, the place quakes. There's seismic activity because people are rejoicing and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now, save now. There's a celebration that is going. These two men from Emmaus, they would have been there. And we can only imagine the excitement that is building in their hearts saying, yes, this is all we anticipated Passover was going to be. We're so excited to be here live experiencing it. They would have naturally wanted to follow the crowds because they're, what is all this about? Who is this Jesus? They would have heard some of the most incredible teachings that Jesus gives during that week. They would have heard wisdom and power and authority and they're thinking nobody can teach like this guy. Nobody has ever taught like Jesus can teach, not only with power and authority, but with love and compassion, with boldness and with a first-hand experience because he's been there, because he's seen it, because he is the word of God, the one who is the alpha and the omega. So again, they're just thinking, this is amazing. Now we're going to see later, these two men are going to be considered disciples. Just a little side note, that is a title that is given to people who have decided to follow Jesus. So they're disciples, they're followers of Jesus, they're desiring to follow him and learn from him as teacher, as master, as Lord. We're going to see these two men, they are actually going to have some connection with the other disciples, with the 11, the the 12 minus Judas that are still around in Jerusalem. They're going to hear the testimony from the women, those faithful women who went to the tomb early that day. They're They're going to recount there. So these two men who are heading back to Emmaus, they're disciples. They're part of the early church. Now, when did they come to know Jesus? That's a question we're going to have to wait until eternity to ask them because I don't know. Maybe they came to know the Lord and became disciples of Jesus this week. Maybe they had already come to know Jesus as Lord and have come here and are saying, I don't know. The bottom line is they're disciples and that's what they're called. So just hold on to that. It's important. But while they're here for this feast of Passover, they're here for these kind of, the beginning of the week is, is, is amazing and there's a lot of rejoicing and celebration, but as the week starts to near its end, picture these guys hearing commotion of a different sort, hearing some shouting, but it's not the same kind of shouting they were hearing when they first arrived in Jerusalem. And so once again, picture them following the crowds to say, what's going on? What's all this commotion about? As we would all naturally do. And as they get a little closer, they're not hearing Hosanna, Hosanna. They're not hearing save now, save now. They're hearing crucify him, crucify him. And I picture them trying to wade through the crowd. I say, crucify who? Who are we talking about here? And they get close enough and they see that's Jesus up there. They're talking about crucifying Jesus. And they would hear Pilate say, crucify him. Why? What evil has he done? And I picture our two guys from me saying, nothing. He's done nothing evil. He's done nothing wrong. But their two voices are being drowned out 
by the chief priests and the rulers and all those religious leaders who are filled with envy towards Jesus and have already turned the crowd against him and they're shouting so loudly to crucify him that their two voices are drowned out. They would have been there watching Jesus condemned to death, watching Jesus sentenced to crucifixion, watching Jesus carry his cross to Calvary. They would have watched him nailed to a cross. They would have watched him exalted, high and lifted up on that cross where he's going to die. They watch him perhaps being taken off that cross and buried in a tomb and a stone rolled in front of it and they think, this is the worst Passover we could have ever attended. This is not what we were expecting earlier in the week. This is not why we made the trip to Jerusalem and we're, we're left at this place where we're wondering what are these two guys thinking? As they make their way now, as the text is gonna pick up, as they're making their way from Jerusalem, from that moment, Passover week is now over. When Jesus gets placed into that tomb, now it's time for the actual Passover feast that they came to celebrate. Do you think they feel like celebrating? We're going to see no, they do not feel like celebrating. But they can't leave then because there's a holy day and then a Sabbath day. They're stuck in Jerusalem, unable to travel until now Passover week is over. It's the third day. It's the first resurrection Sunday and it's their eighth day for being there. And and all they really want to do is get back to Emmaus and probably forget that this week ever even happened. So as we kind of wonder, what's their hearts? What's going on in their heads? What are they thinking? Let's pick it up in the text and find out. Luke chapter 24, picking up in verse 13, says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And Jesus said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Here's our situation. Here's these same two guys that we just opened up. Here's the things that have happened. Notice they're making their way back home, the city from which they came, which is Emmaus. And notice that we're told it's seven miles from Jerusalem. If you looked at a map, you would see that Emmaus is seven miles west of Jerusalem. Now we're going to see later when these two disciples start their journey back, we're going to see that it's happening in the late afternoon because when they finally arrive in Emmaus, it's going to say, they're going to say, the day is far spent. It's evening time now. It's nearly dark. Now why is that important? What's important because I want you to picture these two guys are walking west into the sunset on this third day after this Passover week. And why is that important? Why is that unique? Because in so many regards, that's exactly how they are feeling. That the sun has set on their hope. That the sun is setting on all of their expectations. That the sun is setting, marking an end, not the beginning of what they were hoping was going to be a brand new day, a brand new beginning for them. As we want to think what their hearts or what their mindset is, what's going on in their heads, the sun is setting and they are sad as they walk and they talk about all that has happened on their way home. 
That's what's happening with these two men. Now, as they're conversing and reasoning with another, we're seeing that Jesus himself is going to show up and start walking alongside them. Now, I hope for you, I hope that makes you shuffle in your chair a little bit, or maybe sit a little bit far forward saying, what? Jesus has just come alongside them? Jesus wants to talk to them? This is just getting good. Keep tuning in here with what's going to happen here. As they talk, and they conversate, and reason about Jesus, all they really want is to see him again, to hear his voice again, to walk with him again, to be his disciples Again, And that's the moment when Jesus draws near to them. And check out what Jesus is willing to do. He's going to walk their pace. He's going to walk in their direction. And he's going to do this because what he really, really wants to do is on this third day, on this first resurrection Sunday, Jesus wants them to know, Jesus wants all of us to know, the sun didn't set on that day, the sun rose on that day. And it has changed everything from that day forward. But I want you to be confident of this. Jesus still does stuff like this. Jesus still very much draws near to us as we draw near to him. That is what he promises. As we conversate about him, as we talk about him with other people, as we are gathered where two or more are gathered in my name, Jesus says, there I am in their midst. Jesus still does this. And if you're here and maybe you're tuning in and you're watching all by yourself, you're thinking, oh, well, it's a bummer for me because I'm all by myself. I only know Jesus has a history of seeking the one who is by themselves, knowing so in tune with what is in their heart and making a special trip to connect with you. So Jesus is here. He's in our midst right now as we talk about this same day, as we talk and we reason and we wonder in our minds about the magnitude of what this day is all about. You better believe Jesus is right here in our midst, just like we're seeing right here. But what does Jesus want to do? As he comes alongside these two, I want you to see a couple things. I want you to see in verse 16 that these two men, these two disciples, they're not going to recognize that it is Jesus at first. Verse 16 says, their eyes are restrained. It is as if Jesus is restraining their eyes with purpose for a time. And we want to know, well, why would he do that? Well, we're going to see it is for their own benefit. And we're going to talk very much of why he's doing that in a minute. But I just want you to see that he's restraining their eyes also for our benefit. So we can continue to get the dialogue of this awesome conversation. But look at how Jesus embarks upon it. Look at what Jesus wants to direct this conversation to. In verse 17, he says, what kind of conversation is this? Why are you sad? I want you to notice some of these things here. This part is amazing to me. This is a beautiful part in this story. I want you to see first, I want you to see that Jesus sees that they are sad. I want you to see that he notices their downcast spirit, their countenance that is a little gloomy. And then number three, I want you to notice that he doesn't just see it. He doesn't just notice it. He asks about it. Why are you sad? What is going on in the innermost part of your heart? And I love this because it's such a loaded question, isn't it? How many of us, we're afraid to ask this question. If we're honest, we may see the first thing. We may see it. We may notice it. But if we're honest, we're afraid to ask the question. 
because it's just so heavy and we just sometimes are not willing to wade through the answer that person might give. Right? I, I think we'd all admit, yeah, it's true sometimes. But I want you to know this. Jesus never feels that way. Never in any instance, in ever any season, in any circumstance that you're going through, Jesus never is afraid to ask that question to our hearts because it is never too heavy for him. He is never unwilling to come alongside us and walk us through the most challenging of seasons. To walk us through, to walk with us in the moments where we are the saddest. That's what we're seeing here about Jesus. He comes alongside them in their sadness. Sometimes there's this idea that, oh, I can't come to Jesus. I have to have it all together. Listen, where did you get that idea? Right? Not from the Bible. Jesus says, come as you are. Come because you're rejoicing. Come because you're sad. Come because you're angry. The point is, just come. Just come to the Lord and say, God, here's my heart. And what I really need is you. I need you to fix it. I need you to speak into the depths of it. I need to hear from you. And sometimes Jesus does just that as we're seeing here. So he asks, why are you sad? The question now becomes, are you brave enough to answer that question? Are you brave enough to tell Jesus, well, this is why I'm sad. This is what's going on in my life. And so I just want you to take a moment. I want you to meditate about that. You're one of these two walking to Emmaus. Jesus has come alongside you. And he asks you out of love, out of compassion, with a solution in mind, because he is the remedy for our sadness. He asks you, why are you sad? How would you answer that? I think for many of us, there's a lot of reasons behind the why in our answer to that question. I think some of us would simply say, because things just aren't going well. Things aren't going well for me right now. My health, my finances, my relationships, just things aren't going so well. I've been laid off. I'm on furlough, whatever that means. My job just ended because it just closed down and I was deemed non-essential and so now I'm facing retirement. I wasn't ready to make that decision. That kind of has me sad. Maybe some are saying important, important to me events were canceled. My 50th birthday was yesterday. I'm only turning 51 time. I had all these plans. We made reservations. Some of those things, I got no refund. I'm sad about it. I was supposed to be going to these places. I was supposed to be seeing some of these people. Some would say, I'm sad because people I love and care about are suffering and dying, and I can't even go see them. I don't even get to be by their bedside. That makes me sad thinking about that. Some are saying, I'm sad because there's just so much uncertainty around me. There's, there's so many things that I thought were going to happen that haven't happened that way. I'm sad because I prayed and the answer hasn't been what I wanted the answer to be. I'm sad because I thought Jesus was going to do something and he hasn't done it yet. And I'm sad about it. That's exactly what is going on with these two disciples from Emmaus. And I point out again, that's why Jesus asked the question. He knows they're sad. And he's going to press that and extract some of that information out of them. But I want you to see that. That's exactly what Jesus asks. And that question is absolutely relatable to all of us. We all have an answer. 
This season, this pandemic has all marked some of us with some sadness, with some some things that we just really, really don't know how to process some of those things. But I want you to understand that not only is Jesus willing to ask the question, but as we continue through that, it's because Jesus has a remedy for the problem. He is a solution. He has the solution. And so he's setting them up here by pressing some of these things. He wants to show us something. He wants to show them something. And really what it is, is the someone who has promised to walk with us, with them through every season. That's one of the reasons. We'll still talk about why he's restraining their eyes. But just think about how this builds. Verse 18 says, Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And a certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him, Jesus, they did not see. So as they're walking along the way, they're making their way back to Emmaus. They're walking and talking, and Jesus, although they don't know it's Jesus, is pressing the question, why are you so sad? And one of them, Cleopas, is going to respond and say, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened? And that not only shows us just the magnitude of this situation, not only spiritually speaking, but just historically. They're saying it was impossible to be in Jerusalem during this week, during this Passover, and not see what was going on. Not see everything concerning Jesus. Jesus was the talk of the whole week, right? Everything is always about Jesus, but in this season more than ever, and it was right here in this moment. So are you the only one who does doesn't see it was impossible to be in Jerusalem and miss that it was the biggest thing happening over Passover nobody could miss it but notice what Jesus says he says he says what happened he says what things what things are you talking about that and as we kind of follow through this dialogue I just want you to see something again about Jesus's heart not only is he willing to say why are you sad but he also says give me some detail what specific things how many times have you, you've been talking to someone and, and, and they're asking kind of how are you doing or, or, or what's going on in your life or I love to say how's your heart and you're kind of like, you, you kind of give a vague answer at first because you don't really know if they're interested, right? When we say, hey, how you doing? That's really more of a greeting than a question into your well-being in our culture anyways. So you kind of say, oh, you're saying, oh, I'm okay, you know, I'm... 
I'm not sleeping so well. I'm kind of focused on some wrong things. I don't have much of an appetite. You throw some little kind of tidbit of information, some little seed trail that if the person is at all listening and cares, they're going to pick up about those things and say, well, what things? What specific things are you thinking about? What's going on? And that's exactly what Jesus does here. He wants to know the detail. What is going on? I really want to know. I really want to know what's making you sad. And so they start to tell him, they start to share with detail the things that have happened. They, they start by saying, well, there was this guy. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth. And I think it's amazing here, right? They're, they're talking to Jesus, although they don't know it's Jesus that they're talking with, but they're telling him about this guy, Jesus of Nazareth. And they say he was a prophet, a person who had the authority to speak for God, both forth-telling, which is speaking the word of God with power and authority, what has been spoken previously, and foretelling, speaking of things that will come in the future. A prophet. This, this guy was a prophet, they say. He was mighty in word, taught with power and authority. He was mighty in deed. He did amazing things. He was healing the blind. He was cleansing the leper. He was giving the lame the ability to walk again. There's, and it, was, it was amazing. You should have seen what this man was willing to do. His compassion upon people. And the greatest of all, he offered forgiveness of sins. They spoke about the ability, Jesus spoke about the ability to reconcile fallen man, sinners, back to holy, righteous God. How, how can that be? They wanted to know so much more, but it was this beautiful expectation. And I imagine their voices are picking up as the tone and excitement as they remember who Jesus was, who Jesus is. But then it starts to trail off as they say their tone changing, their excitement dying as they say he was delivered up to be condemned to death. He was crucified and we were hoping it was going to be he who was going to redeem Israel. And you picture the sadness just kind of overwhelming them again. And we wonder why are they sad? Well, they're sad because their hope died in Jerusalem when Jesus died on a cross. And now this third day, they're leaving with that heaviness. But I want you to notice all the past tense words that are used in that section. He was a prophet. He was mighty in word and deed. He was supposed to be the redeemer. And the clincher is verse 21. We were hoping that he was going to do something awesome, something we've been longing for, and now it just doesn't look like that's ever going to happen. All hope has been lost. When you speak in a past tense variety like they have spoken here, you're getting the gist that they're really not expecting a resurrection on Resurrection Sunday, even though Jesus foretold that it was going to happen. But just feel the weight of that. That's where they're at. They're leaving disappointed. I came across a a story this week. There was a a five-year-old boy in Texas who was looking forward to his family's trip to the Grand Canyon. And his his father was was trying to describe just how grand the Grand Canyon was. And his father was saying, son, it's bigger than downtown Dallas. And this little boy, his eyes were, were, were huge and he was shaking with excitement. He just couldn't wait to see it. When are we going? When are we going? Is today the day? Well, they finally go to the Grand Canyon and they walk over to the rim and they're, they're looking at the overlooking points and, and the, the little boy starts to frown, 
And then he starts to cry. And then he gets really, really sad. And the mom and dad are looking, oh, what's going on here? This was not the reaction I was thinking that our son was going to get at the Grand Canyon. And so the mom comes up and says, son, what's wrong? And the little boy says, I thought we were going to see a big cannon. And I was really hoping I was going to get them, I was going to to see them shoot it. Think about that. The only way you go to the Grand Canyon and leave disappointed is if you thought you were going to see the cannon of all cannons, the Grand Canyon, and as a five-year-old boy, that is what your expectations were. But he misunderstood what was going on here. And so his expectations are falling apart here. He's sad. He's disappointed. Why? Because he misunderstood what was going to happen. And that's exactly what happens on this day with these two disciples. It's not that Jesus let them down, although can't you see they're disappointed with Jesus at this point. We were hoping he was going to be who we thought he was going to be. And they're looking at this situation with disappointment as if Jesus let them down. Rhetorical question, did Jesus let them down? No. Will Jesus ever let us down? No. Why do we sometimes feel let down? Because we think we're going to see a grand canon when we were always going to the Grand Canyon. And we misunderstand, or we have expectations that are not accurately based upon the Word of God. And when our expectations fail to be met, now we attribute that disappointment to God. But God hasn't failed. God didn't limit Himself. God isn't limited at all. God is the grandest of canons and the grandest of canyons all at the same time. God is not limited at all. But it's just an illustration that's showing exactly what they're feeling and what we can go through as well. Sometimes in our limited perspective, we can feel as if God has let us down. And that's the story and the situation here. And I know some of us feel that way. In this season, we feel that way. We feel like these two weary travelers who are heading from Jerusalem to Emmaus, hoping that something was going to happen and hopes have been dashed because something else happened that we never were expecting. And that's where Jesus is coming alongside to to meet them, to address the situation, because even when we feel that way, does that mean it's true? No, right? Truth is truth. Feelings are feelings, and sometimes those things don't match up accurately. Case in point, Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, these two disciples, feeling something that has happened, but misunderstanding the significance of it. So we're building towards what Jesus is going to get in this situation, but he's trying to address them. This is the point that I was wanting to hold off earlier when I was saying, why did he restrain their eyes? Why didn't Jesus just reveal himself at the first? Well, first, it was to bring some of this stuff out. I want you to catch this. Jesus is trying to teach them that they are not to be so reliant on seeing him physically. Jesus has resurrected on this day and he's going to be with them for 40 days. There's 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. But then he's going to be gone physically until he comes again. And he's teaching his disciples here. We're going to see him teach his disciples in other areas during those 40 days. Don't be so reliant upon seeing me physically. Rely upon my written, spoken, recorded word and be reliant upon my spirit that I'm going to send you which will testify you everything you've heard from me. 
but he's trying to break that down because he's setting up. We walk by faith and not by sight. We're not to be so reliant upon seeing him physically. That's one of the bigger picture applications that we're seeing through this text. That he's got to break that dependency. Jesus has been walking this earth for 33 years, doing earthly ministry for three years, the better part of three years. And some of these disciples have been with him for a chunk of that time. But now he's going away and he's preparing them. And so we're going to see him reveal himself and then vanish and reveal himself and then vanish to teach us, I'm always with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you, but I want you to be reliant, not on seeing me physically with your physical eyes, but having hearts of faith, having eyes of faith, having ears to hear, have a spirit that is indwelt with the living God and having the word of God show you, testify the truth of who I am. That's what he's setting up. And we're going to see that very clearly in what he's going to say next. So these guys have said, here's why we're sad. Here's what's happened. Here's why we're bummed out. Here's how we've missed this expectation. And listen to what Jesus has to say next. Verse 25, then Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now church, I love this part. I love this part as much as I've loved each and every part building up to this moment. But yes, I love the way Jesus responds here. Some of you are thinking like, I don't know if I like that response so much. I don't think we should be going around and telling people that they're foolish for not believing something. But listen, as we break this down, you're going to see that that is absolutely the right response from Jesus, the perfect response. This is how Jesus is going to address their sadness. And I want you to catch this too. I love sometimes looking at the text and seeing what Jesus doesn't say. This is one of those moments where Jesus doesn't use some anecdotal little saying that makes you feel better for like a second, but doesn't actually have any weight or any depth or any remedy to rectify the situation, right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know what, guys, things will get better tomorrow, Right? Jesus doesn't break into like a musical interlude and say, the sun will come out tomorrow. Right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't tell him, hey, I want you guys, you know what you really need to do? You need to be more positive. Act like protons and be positive. Right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, I want you guys to remember, cupcakes are just muffins that really believe they could be something better. Right? He doesn't offer those empty little sayings that, again, sound funny for a second, bring a smile to your face for a second, but are absolutely empty to be able to fix the problem of our hearts. They need something a lot deeper, something a lot stronger, and something that's going to last a lot longer. And nobody knows that better than Jesus. Nobody knows how to heal and fix and rectify a sad heart. Nobody knows how to correct misguided expectations better than Jesus. And how does he do it? By pointing 
people to his word by going to them and literally saying, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken. That may sound kind of harsh, maybe even a little too strong, but listen, I guarantee it snaps them out of their sadness and they have given Jesus now their 100% undivided attention. If they haven't before because it's been their swan song, now they're turning around saying, whoa, what does this guy have to say? Who who is he? Who is this stranger who doesn't even know what's going on? What has he got to tell us here? But they're fully engaged. And what Jesus is saying is this. Please don't miss that part. Sit back down. Coffee refill can wait. Please don't miss this part. What Jesus is really saying is, oh, how foolish it is to place your happiness, to place your hope, to place your expectations upon anything other than the word of God. Oh, how foolish it is to let your happiness be dependent upon only what your eyes can see. Oh, how foolish it is to be, to have your happiness be dependent upon only what your heart can understand. Oh, how foolish it is to place your hope on your own expectations. Oh, how foolish it is to put your hope in something that can be absolutely stopped in the midst of a pandemic. Those are honest words from a loving Savior giving us information that we all need to grab a hold of and apply to our lives. This is God's grace revealing what he really wants. He says, instead, anchor yourself and anchor your happiness to the unchanging, never failing, eternal word of God. Another moment to yell at your TV, amen. Because that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what Jesus is leading. Jesus is ultimately the remedy for our sadness and the tool he uses to reveal himself and his will and his expectations is the word of God. So in this moment, as he tells them, even rebuking them, he's showing them the remedy for them for their sadness. In, in a sense, he's asking them another question that I love to ask when it comes to missed as expectations, when it comes to thinking Jesus let us down, it's, it's the question, what does the Bible have to say about that? Sometimes we can think, well, it was supposed to happen this way and it didn't happen this way and you're kind of getting all caught up and, and you're worried about, well, what situation is right? You can just say, well, what does the Bible have to say about it? What does the Bible have to say about this situation? That's what Jesus is saying. These guys are all bummed out. They're all disturbed. They're losing hope. Why? Because they're looking at the crucifixion as if it disqualifies Jesus from being the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer of the world. When the Bible says that is actually what qualifies him to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. A suffering servant was always the expectation. Biblically, right? What's really unique is these disciples here and the disciples in the early church, you Bible scholars, you, you, you Bible students, listen to this statement. These initial disciples, they had problems with the suffering of the Messiah. They didn't have any problems with his coming glory. They struggled that he had to suffer. They struggled with the crucifixion. 
But what do we struggle with today? We all understand the suffering. We struggle with his coming glory. We struggle with, with he, him coming again to rule and reign, him coming again in power and authority, right? It's unique how it's kind of been flipped, but here they're struggling with his suffering as a servant, with him coming as a sacrifice to satisfy the payment owed. And so here's Jesus. What is he going to do? He gets their attention. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then enter into his glory? Verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You want to know what Jesus himself says is a remedy to sadness. He says, the understanding, the exposition, the teaching of my word. Jesus himself, he could have said, I'm going to write it in the clouds for you. You want to know the solution? Boom, I'm going to write it in the clouds. Why? The wind's going to come and blow that away. I'm going to write it in the dirt. He's done that before, but that's not the answer here. I'm going to show you another sign. Why? Because those things come and go, and all we really want is another sign. But we have the word of God. Jesus, who John says in John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God, and then the word became flesh and dwell among us, Jesus. And then here's Jesus, the word, picking up the word and saying, here's what the word has to say. You want to get your heart right? You want to recalibrate in what is happening all around you? You want to anchor yourself to some place that is secure, that has a foundation, that is not going to be tossed to and fro by the winds and the waves and the, the storms of this life? Anchor yourself to the word of God. And he starts teaching them and washing them and explaining to them, saying, can't you see, don't you know, this was always the plan of God. I picture how incredible it would have been. I would have loved to be a part of that Bible study. But but it says, Jesus, starting at Moses, we're, we're in the book of Exodus, the first five books of our Bible, those are called the books of Moses. He says, starting at Genesis, Exodus, he starts pulling out information. He goes into the books of the prophets, pulling out more information, saying, see here, that was speaking about me. See here, that was a, a shadow of what the, what the sacrifice of the Messiah was going to be. God told you, you know what the prophets have to say. Just a few of these, I think that Jesus would have definitely covered Genesis 22. When Abraham takes his only begotten son, the son of promise, Isaac, he takes him up on top of Mount Moriah because the Lord has said, I want you to sacrifice your son, testing the motives of his heart, giving him, let's see where you're at. Do you love me more, Abraham? And Abraham does, and he goes up there, and Hebrews tells us that, that Abraham believes the promises of God so much that even if God wanted him to sacrifice his own son, which he didn't, that God was going to raise him up again from the grave because he's made a promise and God is faithful. And at the last minute, God says, do not harm the boy. But instead he says, I'm going to provide a lamb. A ram is caught in the thickest. But the whole place is called, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. Jesus could say, don't you see this? Can't you see the shadow? That's what God the Father was going to do. That's what Jesus came to do. He's the lamb of God. He's the one whom God has provided as a sacrifice. Exodus chapter 12, we're going to get there in a couple weeks. He definitely, Jesus definitely would have pointed out the shadow that the Passover is as a representation of his coming, a point 
pointing to the sacrifice. Put the blood of a spotless lamb, a Passover lamb, on the doorpost and the lentil of your house in the form of a cross. So the judgment of God can pass over. And any house that doesn't have the blood of a lamb covering it will not be spared. And Jesus pointing out saying, I am the Passover lamb. I am the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And if the blood of Jesus hasn't cleansed our lives, if the blood of Jesus doesn't cover us, there's no passing over the judgment. We're all guilty. We need his righteousness to cover us. I can imagine Jesus absolutely touching on that. Daniel 9, talking about how the Messiah was going to be cut off, dying for the sins of the world, not for himself. Isaiah 53, the Messiah would be a man of sorrows, wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace, what was necessary to bring us peace, would be afflicted upon him. Jesus just pointing out, these are just a few verses. They're everywhere in the Old Testament. Jesus extracting this information saying, don't you see what the Bible says? Don't you see what the Bible says? Don't you see what God was doing here? Can't you see God's heart here? Can't you see God's plan here? Again, this just so energizes me as a Bible teacher. I've never been more convinced that the greatest thing I can do, even in this time of uncertainty, is teach the Word of God to let Jesus be revealed to you through his word. Now, where would I get an idea like that? Listen, I didn't come up with it. Jesus shows us how. This is what Jesus did to show his disciples who he is, to reveal himself, not only as a remedy to sadness, but the right place to anchor your hearts, anchor your expectations, build your life upon the rock that is Christ as chief cornerstone and the apostles' doctrines, the Bible being the other foundational stones. This is the solid footing for our lives. This is what Jesus is teaching. So he's, he's going to reveal it to these disciples. He's going to start to show them. We're going to see them later. They're going to say, was our hearts not burning within us when he was teaching us the word? Was, was there not excitement that was just flowing through every extremity? There's so much excitement. Don't think that the Bible is boring. It is so incredible. It is living and it is active and it is like a lightning bolt of energy that just fires through every extremity. When Jesus is teaching that's what is happening from sad hearts to passionate hearts to absolutely amazed hearts i wonder why we don't see someone say hey hey stranger what's your name by the way because you sure seem to have a whole lot of information on things that we thought you didn't even notice when you were in jerusalem that week but nobody asks him what is going on here but verse 28 says this then they drew near to the village where they were going they're near emmaus And Jesus indicated that he would have gone farther, and they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward heaven, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathering together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. 
And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So picture this, how it kind of closes out, at least the text that we're going to cover this morning. They're near Emmaus. They've walked seven miles. It's probably taken them at the leisurely pace they were going, probably two and a half hours. But it's near evening time. The day is far spent. It's almost dark. This is a time before the, the light bulb, before electricity. So when it was dark, you got off the road, you went inside. And notice that it says Jesus indicated that he wanted to go further. Jesus has other things that he wants to do. Jesus has other people that he wants to visit. Jesus has other plans, things that he wants to accomplish on this day. And so this moment is about to end. These two disciples from Emmaus are about to have this situation end without ever knowing for sure who was that other person walking with us. And there's these moments in all of our lives where there's this moment where where God is just, he's drawing, he's revealing, he's coming alongside, he's ministering to my knees, he's revealing himself to me through his word. And then there's this moment where we all have to take advantage of the opportunity that we're seeing right here. What do they do? They look over at Jesus and say, hey, come and abide with us. Do you know what they just said? They very literally said, Jesus, come into our lives. Don't leave until we know who you are. Don't leave until you solidify our faith in you. They make a profession of faith. They say, Jesus, we want to invite you in. Jesus says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you and you will bear much fruit. And that's exactly what they do. They invite him in to sup with them, to have a meal with them. And that's the perfect response. That is what Jesus wants to do That's what Jesus desires from all of us, that we would all just say, Lord, come and abide with me. Lord, come and and sit on the throne of my life. Come and be my Lord. Come and be my Savior. Come lead me. That's what this whole thing is about. Jesus conquered sin, death, the devil, and the grave. Jesus rose again. And you know what he really wants? Relationship with you and I. Relationship with his creation. Relationship with his disciples. Personally. I think that's beautiful, but I think that we see it here, and it's absolutely amazing. So as they sit down to eat together, they break bread together in fellowship and then through the breaking of bread what Jesus taught his disciples to do to break bread symbolic remembering his broken body to lift a cup which is symbolic of his spilled blood and it says we see that we're like we know this is Jesus and then it says he vanishes from their sight Because again, he's not wanting them to be so reliant upon physically seeing him, but to trust him by faith, to experience knowing that the eyes of our faith are open, that we believe him because we see him and know him, and now we abide in him and he with us. So they know him and Jesus vanishes, but they're connecting all the dots, and what is their conclusion? He is risen. They have the testimony from the women that there was an empty tomb, and they saw the vision from the angels. They have a testimony from Peter and John who ran there and saw the empty tomb. And now they have a personal testimony themselves because Jesus walked with them, met with them, transformed their lives. And now they're coming to the point to say, he is risen indeed. I picture them looking at each other saying, what? Can you believe that this happened? Can you believe what has taken place here? It was Jesus the entire time? And our hearts, were they not burning with, within us when they opened the scriptures? But friends, I want to ask you this. Does anyone read this and say, and say I want wonder if they're still sad 
Right? Do, do we, does anyone even think, are they still sad again? If you're wondering, no, they're not still sad. Because Jesus is the remedy to their sadness. Should they be sad? No. Are they sad? No. Because Jesus has risen. And I want us to bring that even closer to us. Are we sad? Should we be sad? Looking at the light of who Jesus is, the truth of what Jesus has done, should we be sad? I think on this day of absolute restoration, this day of absolute victory, I think the rejoicing is the posture that we should have if we truly believe that it's happened. Because it magnifies who Jesus is, what he's capable of, that nothing can hold him down, nothing can keep him back, that we can anchor ourselves to this truth and find joy no matter the circumstance. The joy of the Lord can be our strength even in the midst of uncertainty. When we anchor ourselves to the right thing, when we grab a hold of the one thing, all other things start to fall into place in a perfect order. We may not get it. I'm not saying I understand everything. I'm not saying some things don't still bum me out, but when I fix my eyes upon Jesus, I am telling you the things of this world do grow strangely dim. And that's the way it's always been. There's still the same circumstances, the same animosity towards Jesus. There's the same fear. There's the same adversaries. But these two are now seeing Jesus for who he is, a crucified, resurrected Lord and Savior, the Son of God. And they're going to follow him with eyes fixed upon him. And what do we see them do? They're going to get right back on that road after walking seven miles one way. They're going to book it in the dark, probably in half the time to get back. Why? Because they have a message to share. They're not sad, slowly moping on their way home. They are sprinting, I imagine. Probably not contextually true, but they're moving quickly here as they're on their way back. It says in verse 33, that very hour they move and get themselves back. They get to Jerusalem and they want to tell the rest of the apostles, the Lord is risen. Notice they say that the Lord is risen. And they're going to convince that. But when you see some of these things, once you encounter Jesus like this, that sadness dissipates. Once you encounter Jesus, encounter Jesus like this, there's no time to waste. Seeing that Jesus is alive, everything the Bible teaches, everything Jesus has to say is true. He validated it. When Jesus sensed Jesus is alive, death has been defeated. Heaven is more than just a dream. Our sins really have been forgiven. All of his promises are true and we are never truly alone again. He promised, I will be with you until the ends of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I come back to, are you still sad? In the light of the glory of his grace, in the light of what he's done, are you still sad? Fixing your eyes on Jesus, this is our remedy. For these two disciples, Jesus was there when, when they needed him the most and he's still there walking with them. Jesus postures himself in the same way for you and I today. He has drawn you to be listening to this, this live stream right now to tell you that he loves you, that he's with you, that he's done everything to defeat that which contends against you. He's the way, the truth, and the life, inviting you to say, Lord, abide with me. Lord, come in and be my king, my savior. Be the anchor, my hope. Be all of those things. Let me fix it upon you. That's the gospel. That's what is being said here. Let that remedy really 
fade away all of that sadness. I found a poem that I wanted to share with you before, before we kind of wrap up and, and have a few more worship songs. This is a poem by, by a, a godly woman named Avis Christiansen. She wrote a few hymns that, that, we would, that we would remember. But listen to what she says. I think this is so applicable to us in this time. I think this is so applicable to wrap up our study here. She says this. She says, yes, life is like the Emmaus Road. That's what we've been talking about, the road to Emmaus. Life is like the Emmaus Road, but we tread it not alone. For besides us walks the Son of God to uphold and keep His own. And our hearts within us thrill with joy at the words of His love and grace and the glorious hope that when the day is done, we shall see His blessed face. Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. Jesus is outstretching His righteous right hand to take yours and to lead you through this uncertainty. So yield your life to the Lord. Come to Him in a simple childlike faith, saying, Father, I'm yours. Let's do that. Let's pray as we close, and we'll have a few more worship songs. But Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, we're amazed. I hope that every single person listening can put themselves in the sandals of these two on the road to Emmaus. That God, there's nothing about them that that is different from us, You desire to come alongside us in the same capacity, God. You desire to ask us, why are we sad? You desire to press in the details of saying, what things are going on? You care about all of that. And then you are willing to point us to the word and say, remember who I am. Remember what I've done. Remember what I'm capable of. Remember, I never promised that it would be easy, but I will be with you. And Father, that alone creates such hope and joy and peace in my heart and I know so many others. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be sent to everyone listening and that you would be comforter and you would bring peace. And to those who are drawing near to you, Lord God, maybe for the very first time, I just pray that that confession, that simple confession would be made. They would say, I believe you, Jesus. I believe you are Lord. I believe you died for my sins. I believe that you rose again. And I want to be a new creation in you. Father, do that mighty work. Add to your kingdom this day. We love you, Jesus, and we rejoice over who you are. We lift this up all together and say, Amen. God bless you all.